I'm Jess Phoenix, and this is Who I Am. My guest today is Jess Phoenix, the geologist and Democrat running against Republican incumbent Steve Knight in California's 25th Congressional District. Hi, Jess. Welcome to the show. Ah, Thanks for having me, Jamie. You're welcome. Um, So let's get started with volcanology. (laughs) Um, You are a (laughs) volcanologist. Are you still a volcanologist or is that that gone to the the back burner now? Oh, no, no. Uh, well, you know, everything's on hold while you run for Congress. That becomes a full-time thing. But uh, but no, I'm. you don't lose the science side of things. I still do um, research whenever I can. Uh, it's very spotty these days. But uh, And I do still help run the, um, the nonprofit organization that I founded, which does science research. But it's much more sporadic than it was before. Mm-hmm. How did it come about? How did you, you fall into that? Ah, well, um, it was... I really like big picture questions. Like I, I like to know why mountains are where they are and, uh, you know, why earthquakes happen and things like that. And I had taken a, an introductory geology course when I was in college and I thought it was amazing because it answered questions about why the planet is the way that it is. So it, it was really just something that kind of, it, it planted itself in my brain and it never really left. And then when I was deciding between uh, law school or geology graduate school, I thought, huh, I could have a job where I get paid to be outside and travel the world and, you know, answer big questions, or I could go to law school and sit in a law library and get a lot of debt. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was sort of hands down geology one. And uh, so while I do love the law and I think it's very interesting, you know, geology has definitely stolen my heart. Mm-hmm. And were you studying history at the same time or was that something you were doing before? Yeah, well, I was a, I actually was a history major as an undergraduate, and uh, I had a, I had so many credits in history, and there wasn't enough time to switch to geology as a major. So I ended up doing my master's degree in geology, but I do have an undergraduate uh, degree in history. Mm-hmm. Did you grow up in in California in Simi Valley, or was there somewhere else? Oh no. No, no, no. I, um, I, I uh, grew up at, well, I, I grew up all over. My parents were FBI agents. So uh, at this point in my life, I've lived in 10 states and three countries. Mm. But I've been, uh, yeah, I've been in California since uh, 2007. Mm-hmm. And uh, I first moved out to um, the district where I'm running in 2014. Uh, I lived in Simi Valley. My husband's family is from Simi Valley, Moore Park area. Mm-hmm. So we have we have family roots around here. Um, but now we live in Acton, which is um, a bit more to the northeast of LA. And it's a little bit more rural, too. Yeah. Um, and when was the moment you mentioned that you're, you're running and it's in the 25th district, right? Against uh, Stephen. Yes. Knight. Um, when was uh-huh. the moment you decided that you were going to run? Well, it was kind of like there was a buildup towards it, uh, you know, with Trump winning the election and then me realizing that Steve Knight was, you know, so anti-science, anti-environment, anti-women's rights, anti-LGBTQ rights. You know, it was there were so many things. And um, I had given a talk at the Natural History Museum in Los Angeles and a friend of mine um, brought uh, his twin boys who were four years old up to me afterwards. And the talk was all about volcanoes. So it was cool for four year olds. Um, but he said, you know, I'm really worried about the world my boys are going to grow up in. Mm-hmm. And I wish, you know, we had good people like you in charge. And I kind of thought, oh, oh, OK, that's an interesting thought. And then at the same 
same talk, a couple of my scientist colleagues came up to me and said, you know, we really need scientists in government. It's a shame that you don't run. And I thought, well, then why don't I run? (laughs) (laughs) So it was kind of a, you know, a couple of cues um, pushed me in that direction. And and I really thought, you know, hey, I can make a difference. I might as well try. Mm. And what's the process when you from the moment you first decided what 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 are the steps for you to actually register that you're going to run? Well, like any good uh, scientist, I wanted to do my research. Yeah, I had to research. So I looked up as much as I could about running for office. And there's a variety of groups out there that try to get people into running for office at different levels. Mm -hmm. And uh, I contacted some of them. And uh, one of the ones that I contacted that was very much um, in line with with who I am was uh, 314 Action, because they are trying to help scientists run for office. Mm -hmm. And so... Um, I wrote to them and they said, oh, they liked my resume and they wanted to talk. And they invited me to a candidate um, training event that they had in Washington, D.C. in in March of last year. Mm -hmm. And uh, I attended that, met some people, and they started to help me build a consulting team, uh, which you need because, you know, you got to have people who know how to navigate um, the news media and the print media that you're going to need and the polling and all of those things. So they provided a lot of early assistance. And uh, from there, I just sort of formed the grassroots kind of campaign that I'm running now because I realized that something that matters a lot to me is getting big money out of politics. So it's sort of taken shape over the course of uh, almost a year that I've been running. Mm. Um, you mentioned that your parents were FBI agents, and um, I, now forgive me if I'm wrong, but I'm just presuming that it was a conservative household that you grew up in. No, you're completely correct. <laughs> uh, my pa- my parents are Republicans, and uh, my mom actually served um, under the George W. Bush administration in Homeland Security uh, mm-hmm. after she had retired from the FBI because she is an expert on terrorism, and uh, and my dad is an expert on cybercrime and and white collar crime. Mm. So they're very security oriented and, uh, you know, very smart people. And we disagree on a lot of things, but that's, you know, it's kind of the nature of our country is we have people of all different backgrounds and belief systems and, and, you know, people, people's opinions about what we should do. Uh, They can be very polarized these days, but I just try to stick to the facts. I try to use evidence and facts to make, you know, to form my positions. And I think that that resonates with people, even if we don't have the same letters after our name for the different parties we support. Mm Um, when did you did, were you always uh, leaning towards democratic or, or? Yeah, you know, I when I was eighteen, uh, because of my parents, I registered <laughs> Republican, and uh, and then when I went away to college, I went to a, a rather liberal college, uh, Smith in Massachusetts, mm-hmm. and I started to realize that there was more to the world out there than what I had been exposed to at that point, and um, you know, the more and more I was exposed to more diversity and different people's backgrounds and things. I just sort of naturally shifted to being um, just more inclusive in my mindset, and that aligns more with the Democratic Party. Hmm. Um, have you spoken to your parents? Do they feel like the the Republican Party has, has shifted away from what their core beliefs were with this current administration? Do you think, or is it? it, it <laughs> has the polarization got so deep that people aren't aren't really communicating about that? No, I, I know that they have deep problems with. Uh, with Trump in charge of the Republican Party. And, you know, my I think my dad in an email he wrote just recently was mentioning how he disagrees with the way the Republicans are spending money these days because they used to be the very thrifty party. And now they are, uh, you know, giving a one point five trillion dollar tax cut that's going to mainly benefit large corporations. And I just don't think that's the Republican Party that was my parents party. Mm-hmm. So 
they they have problems with it. And I know a lot of more conservative people do as well, because the party seems to be embracing um, just an ideology of intolerance and, and hate in some cases that and sort of um, anti-factual or downright lies. And I think that really bothers a lot of people who grew up um, with the Republican Party, at least able to talk to and work with the Democratic Party. Hmm. Yeah, there definitely seems to be like that the intellectualism is has become a bad word. And um, and that leads into um, like the, the split in how people see education in, in America. In yes. The future. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, it, do you have I mean, as a scientist and as someone who who deals in facts, do you have a, a tough time dealing with with people who seem so disconnected from from actualities and from facts or is that a problem that can be fixed by education or do you think it's a deeper problem? Well, you know, even when I'm talking with people who uh, are, you know, who have viewpoints similar to mine, I actually do see a lot of misinformation that people take as, as truth. And, you know, it'll be around things like chemtrails. Uh, mm-hmm. I hear that one a lot. Um, chemtrails are real. Chemtrails are real. And no, 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 no. Uh, <laughs> I, I'd always like to try to tell people, look, the government is so bad at keeping secrets um, that something like chemtrails, it would be everywhere if it were true. And plus that would require a massive amount of coordination um, between you know the government and local organizations to cover things up. And our government can barely keep the lights on, let alone coordinate massive cover-ups. So I always have to make that sort of a point. But, you know, when we get into things like climate change, um, you know, that's something where I will talk to people and I really try to uncover um, why they believe what they believe. Mm -hmm. And and I think that can hold true for everybody. You don't have to be a scientist. Uh, If you find somebody who has a belief that you know to be untrue based on the evidence you've seen, I think it's kind of, you know, the way that you can reach some sort of an understanding or at least open the dialogue with someone is to truly ask questions that you, that you really want to hear what their answer is to. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you say, why do you believe that? Why do you think that way? Or what have you seen that, that has shown you, uh, that that's the right way of thinking. And when you start to talk to people, you find out a lot of times that they don't actually know necessarily why they believe certain things. And that kind of, that kind of conversation starter of just asking questions and be willing to hear the response that, that makes a big difference in how we interact with each other. Yeah, and a lot of the the, um, the misinformation and and uh, especially about climate change. I mean, it dates back to the seventies and to to um, earlier, where stuff was information was was moved around and and uh, misused by people. And it's it's such a a, a deep well of uh, of um, uh, conflict that that needs to be sorted through before you can even get mm-hmm. to so um with, uh, and mentioning climate change i mean that's uh, uh it's something that you, that's quite dear to you um um and it's a, a serious problem but do you feel like it's it's a problem too far i mean a lot of people have been saying that that it's past the point of repair and we're now in just <laughs> um like making do and making a future where we can survive for as long as we can but uh, how do you feel about that is that are you, as, uh, are you as, as down on the idea or do you think there is a, a still a chance? 
Well, I've seen a lot of examples uh, throughout history where especially America has taken on challenges that are just monumental and we've overcome them. I mean, we sent a man to the moon within a decade of declaring that as a goal. And mm -hmm. we were able to, uh, when the Dust Bowl was a huge crisis for our country and we had millions of people starving and out of work and we had storms that were blowing, you know, black dust clouds all the way from the Midwest and the West out to Washington, D.C., uh, the government pulled together, worked with scientists, worked with local industries and created solutions. And I think that, you know, we can I mean, the climate is changing. Yes. And a lot of that's natural. But the man made stuff, we can still mitigate a lot of those impacts and we can actually make sure that we are investing in technologies that are going to help us adapt. And so what I tell people is, you know, I really try to break it down into three words and that's uh, adapt or die. Mm -hmm. And that's where we are. We have to be, as a society, flexible and willing and mobilized so that we can adapt to the conditions of the world that we're in. And that means we do have to. We have kind of a two-pronged um, duty. And prong number one is do our best to mitigate uh, you know, human-caused climate effects. And then prong number two is make sure that our populations are prepared to deal with the effects of the changing climate. Mm-hmm. Um, and that kind of leads into the idea of like green tech being something that we can shift over from from um, um, uh, fossil fuels and, and reliance on on finite resources. Um, the, but the the, the uh, one of the issues with that is that the infrastructure that we have in place um, in America, especially, is built on providing the, lots of rural places and lots of uh, isolated places with with electricity and gas and power through through this old system that we have in place and with green tech do you think there's i mean are you, are, is it would it be too fast to to shift everything over do you think or is there room to slowly move in and is there enough time to to, to do these in gradual steps or do you think that we're we should be acting faster and <laughs> well, I, I think that we really need to uh, put a whole bunch of our resources behind um, making green tech a priority. So a lot of innovation, a lot of investment in green technology development. Uh, I'd love to see the federal government incentivizing um, private sector companies to really enter the space and give it their all uh, because those are jobs that are not going to go away with automation. They're jobs that are going to last for the next several decades. So I think it's, you know, there's several benefits that can come from shifting towards green technology. Uh, but I also think that, you know, we need to have real buy-in from communities to make this happen. Mm -hmm. um, and I, th I mean, I think the opportunities are there. And so we really have to, to understand that we're not going to continue to move forward as a society unless we look into progressive technologies, things that are um, new and different and innovative. And I think we're really, really well positioned to do that. But we just have to have people in office who have the political will to say, you know what, we are going to try these things. We are going to invest and we are going to count on the brilliance of our scientists and engineers like we have before in times of need. Hmm. What's your um, your most hated lie about climate change or most hated untruth or, or uh, piece of well, misinformation? Well, just that humans have nothing. Well, I'd say that humans have nothing to do with it. 
Um, you know, because that's, you know, yes, the climate has always changed. I'm a geologist. The earth is 4.54 billion years old. And <laughs> there have been many, many, many different cycles of heating and, and cooling throughout the planet's past. It's just that we have seen an acceleration of this most recent cycle since the combustion engine came onto the scene and we had the industrial revolution. The, the link is there. It's undeniable. And you know, just because we have an effect on the environment doesn't mean that we're saying, oh, we're terrible, we're awful, you know, give up all technology that is polluting. No, we're saying, oh, hey, we've seen how we've gone off course. Let's make a course correction. This isn't an us versus them thing. This is a humanity wide problem that we need to tackle. Hmm. Um, with the the house, um, I know that it, it, um, traditionally the idea of the house was that it was to represent the people in government, and it flipped, um, I think it was under Clinton, wasn't it, where it flipped over to Republican for the first time in in decades. Um, and do you think that, that, that because of that, there is now this, uh, the American government is kind of leaning more towards protecting the interests of the few and the, the wealthy over people, the working people? And, and like, do you see problems with that? Is there, is there, I mean, trade unions and stuff like that are collapsing and... and wage disparity is definitely a problem here. And yes. I mean, yes to all of that, because <laughs> it's just, it's just such a problem. And, you know, our government is not representative of the people and particularly not the house. I mean, we've got 80% of Congress as lawyers and business people, which mm -hmm. is not 80% of our country. Uh, and so we really need to make sure that the House is serving its function as a check on the presidency. Um, that is what Congress is supposed to do. And right now it's not doing that. It's not fulfilling that role. Um, there is a real disparity because big money dominates so much of politics and corporate money, lobbyists, they really control the conversation. And, you know, if you're just trying to make a few rich donors happy, you're not going to be listening to the needs of people in the community. And I think that's why campaign finance reform is it's not just a, a buzz buzzword or a catchphrase. It's a real problem. And, you know, tack, how do we get campaign finance reform? Well, we need to send people to Congress who aren't tied to big money special interests. And those are the people who are going to listen to the people back home and uh, really have their best interests in mind. So until we can get some grassroots folks into office, I don't think we're going to see a change. But once we do, oh boy, uh, yeah, the 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 um, wealthy folks better watch out because the the change will come. Mm. There's a lot of um, there's, there's a, like a huge spike in the number of uh, women and the, the number of younger women who are running in, in this cycle. Um, is that something you think can be sustained or is that just a response to the current administration? I think it I think it will be sustained as long as we keep talking about it. Um, once it becomes a normal thing for people to engage civically, then it'll be easy for us to maintain it. But that means that we have to be talking to people who aren't represented in, in politics right now or represented in our government. And we have to be encouraging them to run and we have to be facilitating their, their runs for office. And, you know, like right now I can tell you from firsthand experience that there is no way, uh, a single mother would, you know, without vast financial resources would be able to run for office, uh, for Congress in particular is what I'm, what I'm talking about, because this is, it requires you to campaign for Congress as a full-time job to mm -hmm. be competitive. And, you know, if you don't have a partner earning income that you can live off of, 
it just wouldn't even be possible. Um, a single person would even have a hard time uh, as if they weren't independently wealthy. So I think this is something where we need to change the system because it's not working for all of the people. It's only working for some. Hmm. And with um, the the idea of like the you were saying about money and politics being a real problem, is that something that you have hit for like you've experienced firsthand now? Have you seen? where money where have you have you encountered any situations where you're like oh if i had money or back in here i could see how i my message would be broadcast louder or i would have more of a voice here and and feel yourself being restricted in any areas or well you know i don't have access to the traditional um wealth networks that people do usually when they run for congress mm. you know i don't have a bunch of of rich lawyer friends uh, and <laughs> Because I, I'm not taking money from um, corporate PACs. So, you know, I don't have those avenues available to me, which just means that I need to be creative and make sure that my message reaches as many people as possible. Uh, plus, I want to make sure that I'm running a campaign that I'm proud of. So mm -hmm. that, you know, when or not when, uh, I, I still am able to say, look, this is what I did. This is how I did it. And I think that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm content with or at least um, happy with the job that I did. And I think that's kind of the, the end goal for a lot of people when they enter is to make the change that they can. Uh, but at the end of the day, they don't want to lose themselves to the political machine. And, you know, that's very important to me. I mean, I'm not a politician. I'm a scientist. And I want to be able to um, be proud of my work in any field. Mm. Do you feel like it was a perfect storm that got Trump elected? There was like the, you know, you had Citizens United that just passed. You had um, a very strong racial reaction in this country and you had um, people really understanding how to weaponize misinformation and stuff. Do you think it was was it it was just it happened to happen at this time or do you feel like there's that like once this has gone away or, or if this goes away <laughs> um, that there will still be big problems that need to be fixed or that that was like the the last like death cry of, of uh, a very old way of thinking. <laughs> Well, I think that we have a lot of institutionalized problems in our country, and that's because, you know, our society has modernized, but our laws and our, you know, our ways of doing things haven't necessarily kept pace. So we have the holdovers of, of racism and, like, let's say the past that had the Cold War involved in it. Um, civil rights issues that we haven't fully resolved. Uh, and we haven't even ratified the Equal Rights Amendment. And that's that should be a no-brainer. So there are a lot of things that kind of did combine. But I also think that, um, you know, the systemic problems that we see, like racism and uh, and sexism and, you know, just inequality of opportunity, those things are all they, they sort of were stirred to a boiling point. And then you add uh, the rejection of the first African-American president uh, into the mix. And then also the disproportionate influence that um, the the rural states um, have on the voting process. You know, they I think they account for less than 40 percent of the economic output of the country. But they, those are the the counties that elected Trump. Uh, and so they are not the, the country, the parts of the country that make the biggest impact economically and have the most people are not the parts of the country that have the biggest say in our government. So we, we really have a government right now that is not representative of the people in our country. And I think it's just a combination of things. But, 
you know, I'm hopeful that with this new generation of folks who are getting involved uh, up and down the spectrum, whether it's teenagers, you know, marching against gun violence, mm-hmm. or uh, whether it's, uh, you know, people like me who are getting into politics when our careers had taken us in a completely different direction. I just think we have a lot of opportunity right now to course correct. And I think that's where, what we need to be doing. Mm. Um, you mentioned uh, gun violence and the marches that were happening uh, yesterday. And um, there is a kind of a sense that, you know, that in the past it felt like the, 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 um, the speed with which these events would occur where shootings would happen or where gun violence would, would impact uh, uh, communities was so fast that you could never quite get your head above water. But now it feels like, um, like finally, I think people have understood that it is a problem that needs to be fixed. And it's such a shame that we're, we, we have to go through so much to get here. But um, do you, I mean, you, your parents were both in the FBI and I, I imagine that guns were a part of, uh, were in the household when you were growing up or, or at least you were aware that they existed. How do you feel about um, the Second Amendment and uh, the NRA and gun control and the debate over whether or not it's something that that is a fixable problem or if it's something that is like it's it, it is there still a sense that it's the thing that politicians can't talk about I think that we need to not only be talking about gun reforms, but we need to be screaming about them because <laughs> not you know progress has not happened in this in this area. And again, it's big money in politics. You've got the NRA and the gun lobby, which is solely concerned with making profits for the gun manufacturers. Uh, and you know they, I mean, they've even said that they've said women. If you advertise to women, they'll buy more accessories for their guns. So let's market the guns to women. Uh, you know, let's get more women involved, and they do that through the NRA TV channel. They do it through their magazines. They do it through the way they recruit members. And, you know, it's just it's disgusting to me because they are profiting off of people's deaths. And I was um, you know, I did I was raised with parents who were very comfortable with weapons because they had been very, very extensively trained in how to use firearms safely. And as you know, as things that were to do a job, it was something a last resort if you were doing a job and things went south. So um, with 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 my experience as a 17 year old in 1999 when the Columbine shootings happened, and you know I was dating a guy who went to Columbine at the time of the shootings, and I knew people who were involved. Mm. Uh, I learned from a very very young age that guns are deadly; they are too easily available for people who shouldn't have them, and uh, you know we don't. And then we have these weapons of war. I guess I should say they're just weapons of war that are capable of causing. Ex- extreme destruction to human bodies. And there's no need for those in our society. They, the casual users do not need weapons of war. And there is no justification. So I think that, you know, we are beyond time for politicians to be to be taking stands. And, you know, I I would be thrilled to get an F rating from the NRA because <laughs> that to me is a badge of honor. That is a badge of saying that you're standing up for people who no, who can't stand up for themselves, who don't have that ability because they have lost their lives to mm-hmm. not just mass shootings, but to domestic violence and to suicide. Uh, and just having guns in the house makes a gun accident so much more likely that we do not need these things. Our country is the only country in the world that has this sort of problem with guns and we can fix this and it is beyond time. Hmm. Do you, when do you get your NRA rating? Do you know when that happens? <laughs> <laughs> no, 
not soon enough. I, I wish I could get it yesterday. Uh, <laughs> but. Um, and I mean, this kind of touches on the next uh, subject, which is healthcare and um, you know the 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 economic impact of gun violence and the health impact of gun violence in in this country. I think a lot like there was the the recent um, uh, shooting that happened, and the NRA almost instantly put out a video where they were saying, "See, uh, a good guy with a gun can stop." violence from happening but they completely glossed over the fact that people were injured in the shooting and that there was the, there's psychological and physical health implications in these these events happening and um health especially in america is such a uh, it's it's something that people have to make choices over whether or not they're going to be healthy sometimes you know because the the cost is so high and the uh, accessibility is so restricted that sometimes people are having to make choices about whether or not they're going to have uh, the, a healthy life. Is that uh, how, how is that something that can be fixed, do you think? Yes, I am a big proponent of getting everybody uh, in our country access to healthcare, and not just you know guaranteed visits to the ER, which we've seen. The Affordable Care Act has allowed many, many, many more people to access care, but often they have to go to the ER because they don't have access to a primary care physician in a timely way. Mm-hmm. Um, so this causes you know backlog in emergency rooms. But uh, you know the doctors I've spoken with who work in ERs say that you know it's much better than things were. But we're not there yet. We're not where we need to be. And so we need people in office. Again, this is all about political will and not being uh, beholden to the big corporations. But we need people who will say, you know what, um, health care and health insurance for profit is harming people in our country. And we need to make sure that we are allocating our, our country's resources can't just be for national defense. And, and when you say national defense, you mean military we need to add, allocate money for national defense in terms of keeping a healthy and educated country. And part of that means making sure that, that nobody goes bankrupt because they can't afford health care uh, and that nobody neglects taking care of their personal health or their family's health uh, or has to you know, give up paying the gas bill or the electric bill because they have to pay a medical bill. Uh, this is or vice versa. Uh, I mean, this is not a place where anybody in our society should be. And I think in order to change that, we need people with the ability to stand up and say, this is wrong. We can fix this. And uh, that's what I'm trying to do. Hmm. Is single payer the solution, do you think? Or is there another solution that you, you think? Well, I think that uh, you know, universal health care and single payer are slightly different, um, just hmm. very slightly. And it's very gets very technical. Uh, single payer means there would be no option for any sort of additional insurance, like supplemental insurance. Um, universal health care means everybody has a basic level of coverage, but then you can also purchase extra insurance or extra plans for different things. So I would be, I'm more in favor of a universal health care solution where people can add on coverages for specific things as they need. Mm-hmm. Um, but we, everybody has a baseline level of coverage. But uh, you know what? Single payer is also, um, you know, that's a term people are very familiar with. And it's the right frame of mind. It's basically saying that we don't have this crazy marketplace for insurances um, where people are, you know, they're supposedly at the mercy of the free market and the free market doesn't have any mercy. So, uh, you know, I I think um, basically either solution is going to be a great leap forward from where we are now. uh, But I would definitely be uh, in favor of single payer or universal healthcare coverage. Mm. Um, and uh, with the economics of that, it's often that there are 
you know, people are throwing around large numbers and talk about the cost, especially in, in California. There was um, um, when when there was a feeling that single payer or Medicaid um, Medicare expansion could actually happen here. There was a real sense of of um, the insurance companies getting afraid and starting to put out huge numbers in terms of cost. Um, I, I mean, it, you mentioned uh, the the military spending in in America, but also uh, we have a Federal Reserve and we produce our own money, so we're not beholden to um, external debts as much as other countries. Like um, the the EU had the the problem with. Um, the, the currency exchange there. Um, because of that, is is it just is is are a lot of these problems just a case of us not spending the money we have in the right way, or not producing enough money to deal with the problems that we have? Or is there, you know, often they, they talk about running the the government like uh, sitting around the kitchen table and balancing the, the budget, but that's not necessarily the way that you run a government or a country. So, how do you how do you get the idea across that these are things that we can afford? Yes. Um, the first part, the first thing that you said, which is that I don't think we're spending a lot of the money we do have the right way. I think that's the, that's the kicker. And, uh, we, the government right now already pays for two thirds of our nation's health insurance expense or healthcare expenses. Um, so we really just have to make up that other third. And I think that if we were to um, start spending money on the right things as opposed to the wrong things, we would see a big shift in patient outcomes and uh, efficiency. And right now, a lot of money that is involved in the health insurance market goes towards overhead costs. So switching to a Medicare for all model uh, eliminates that overhead. And Medicare is a system right now that is uh, most people who have it like it. And it, it takes the overhead costs from double digits down to uh, like about 6%. Mm -hmm. And that is a much, much, much more realistic cost uh, for, for providing care. So I think, you know, the Medicare for all model combined with reallocating some of the bloated uh, military budget towards caring for citizens right here at home, that is going to make us a stronger country and a healthier country. Hmm. Um, with the... Um I mean that that uh, the that message of uh, the the healthcare expansion is such a, a strong easy one that that really felt like it got some um, like it felt like it was a solidified idea that a lot of people suddenly got behind regardless of what their their political affiliations were and it feels like the um, the march as well was another thing that was very bipartisan and it feels like there's a real. Um, like strength in message this time around and that, that people have started to understand how to to go up against the the problems that we had in the the last election where a lot of the message would just be lost in this cycle of almost absurdist news that would come out on a, in like an almost an hourly basis um and the left traditionally has had you know they they they, they turn up for the big events and they vote in, in numbers when they feel like it matters, but then we have these big dips in the midterms and we have the midterms coming up. How do you, how do you feel that you can maintain that level of interest that seems to be there in politics at the moment? Is there a way of, of getting people to understand that like the local level is where it's important and the, and the midterms are important and all of these smaller things are more important than just the big event? 
what I'm trying to do to make sure that people understand that civic engagement is key all the time is making politics more accessible to people. And that means going to schools, elementary schools, middle schools, high schools, uh, and letting them, letting the kids there see that politicians don't have to just be old guys in suits. You know, it can be, they can be young people. They can be people like me. I mean, I wear cowboy boots a lot because I rescue horses and, uh, you know, I, I, I wear cowboy boots. I, I have long hair, you know, I'm, I don't look like what people imagine when they think of, oh, a politician. So, it's connecting with kids and you've got to teach them young. And also, as far as adults go, a lot of it comes from uh, success will come from meeting people on their own terms. Mm -hmm. So what I try to do is make sure I go out into the community a lot and talk to people and, and not just talk to them, but listen to them. And I think that's what a lot of politicians are not doing these days is listening. And so I'm asking people, and in my community, we have uh, about 38% of our, of our people who live here are Latino mm -hmm. and I speak Spanish. Uh, my husband's Latino. So one of the things I've been trying to do is engage with the Latino community because they're often overlooked and out here, our African-American community is overlooked a lot as well. So I'm trying to just talk to people and, you know, whether it's listening to them in Spanish or talking to them in English, uh, it's just a matter of saying, hey, look, I'm here for you. I want to be your voice in Congress. And so tell me, tell me what I need to know. Tell me what's important to you. And, and I just want to sit here and take it all in. And then I use that, that information that I get from talking to people to help inform the policies that I'm advocating for. And I just think that's basic, but that's how we get people to understand that they really do have a voice and that their say does matter and that their vote is worth something. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it felt like, um, uh, and I mean, I, I, the timeline might be a bit uh, wonky for me just because I'm not from America, but American politics is so prevalent around the world. But it felt like with uh, um, uh, Bill Clinton and the, the DCCC, there was a real shift away from the Democrats providing a voice for those people that, that were excluded, um, the, the, um, the Latino community and the black community and the workers. And it shifted more towards this kind of um, upper middle class uh, uh, core group. And um, do you feel like that is something that is, is like something that you're going to conflict with in the Democratic Party? Is there something that you you often see them making choices that you think that isn't what I would do or is not going to benefit my community? Or, or is there more of a sense now that there is a unified front there because it has to be because of, of the current administration? Well, I think the Democratic Party has a long history of having a lot of different people under the umbrella. And uh, it, it's kind of normal for Democrats to have, you know, internal differences of opinion, depending on what wing of the party you're part of, mm -hmm. uh, whether you're a blue dog Democrat or a progressive Democrat or somewhere in between, you know, we've had that for years and years and years. And I think there's a lot of attempts by people to really polarize even within the party. And, you know, it's funny because I get people asking me all the time and, and you know, they'll say, oh, well, you just want to be a Bernie crat or, oh, you just love Hillary. And I'm like, no, 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 guys, it's more than that. It's more nuanced than that. I voted for Bernie in the primaries and I supported the hell out of Hillary in the general. And I think that there's a lot of people like me who see the possibilities, see the options, but realize that the message, the, the fundamental message of the Democratic Party is one of inclusion. And it's a one of drawing diversity, well, strength from diversity, I should say, because we have such diversity, because we value diversity. So we get our strongest uh, policies, we get our strongest movements when we have diversity 
diverse voices included in the conversation. Hmm. Um, is there any changes in how the voting occurs that you would like to see happen? You mentioned before about the um, uh, kind of implied that the electoral college is um, is it does not represent truly the and and you know that that small number. I think it was seventy thousand people that that pushed Trump over the top because of the electoral college. Um, but there is a lot of stuff now in the news about voters' rights and about um, exclusion occurring in some places and um, gerrymandering is a big problem. Is there Are these problems that you can see, are, are these the main problems? Do you feel like if, if voting was more fair and if voting was more universal that, that, um, that the country would shift more towards these progressive ideas? Uh, yes, absolutely. And I think that's, um, you know, we see that strategy uh, with the Republican Party since the 90s. Uh, a lot of it is you can look back to Newt Gingrich and see that the strategy the party had to take the House and take control was um, based in disenfranchising a lot of people, um, particularly people of color, people from lower income communities. And, you know, protecting the Voting Rights Act is one of the most important things that uh, that a politician could do if they really care about um about getting true representation in our government. And, you know, a lot of people right now are, they're afraid to go and vote. Um, they think that, you know, they're, because of the way that things have been gerrymandered in a lot of states, um, that their vote won't count. And they're right in some instances. In the current setup, uh, you know, the Electoral College was a product of the the slaveholding system. It was an appeasement to the South um, because it, you know, it allowed for disproportionate weight to go to states that had had slaves. Uh, and, you know, that that is something that is a really, it's a real startling reminder of our nation's past, our slave owning past, and it needs to go. There is no place for it in modern democracy. And we need to make sure that we are having representation that truly reflects our country and the diversity it has. Hmm. Um, the politics can can move very slowly, um, and the the politics of the current administration, which, uh, um, for lack of a, a better word, is is bordering on fascism, tends to move very quickly. Is there is there a sense that, you know, that it's it's a hard fight to have, and it's it's something that if we don't get it right in these midterms, that the opportunity is going to go get harder and harder to to fight them. I believe that we are going to see, you know, actually even more of a frenzy in terms of how news gets uh, disseminated and yeah, and how and how these crises sort of develop and then dissipate um, because of the fact that we have this 24 hour news cycle. And it's it's not just the typical news outlets. It's just the fact that we have social media and we have these supercomputers in our pockets and mm -hmm. in the palms of our hands and they allow us instant access. So I think that what we have to do is if we want to push back against the sort of the sky is falling mentality that we see from a lot of the, the typical news outlets, we have to have strong, clear voices take the stage. And I think that the students at Parkland are a great example. Uh, they're using social media in a way that 
um, you know, that when I was a student after Columbine, we did not have mm-hmm. the the same access to the connectedness that students today do and that social movements like Black Lives Matter do uh, or the Women's March or the Science March. Um, you know, these are movements where people around the world and around the country and around the, their own cities, people can connect instantly. And we are seeing, I mean, I, I met with a small group of, of women who are here in Southern California who have a group called a huddle. They formed after the Women's March, and they stay in touch using Facebook, and they coordinate events and actions. And uh, these are retired age women for the most part, and they are now active in politics in a way that none of them were prior to Trump being elected. So I think that there, you know, we have to have these these voices of people engaging with each other in a connected way, and that's how you push back against kind of the chaos and confusion and constant terrible news cycle that, that we're seeing. Mm. Um, it says on your website that you wanted to be an NFL player. (laughs) Yes, I did. I did. I did. I love sports. Absolutely love them. And I grew up, um, playing a bunch of different sports and I wish that I had been born a large man uh, as a result. (laughs) Um, sadly that didn't work out because I'm five foot six and and female. So, um, Mm. that dream was not to be, but, uh, I still, I love all sports still. Mm. You being five foot six was, I was actually going to ask because I, I, saw the um the comedy show that was um with uh, Patton Oswalt and uh <laughs> when you came out on stage after him I was going to ask if you were very tall or he was very short but <laughs> <I think. laughs> yeah he's very short um <laughs> he'll admit it too he's the first to admit it <laughs> um do you find that like uh like events like that comedy show are it's it's it helps and and also with the social media it helps to um, co- connect with people uh, in a way that wasn't there before that is um, like a almost a shorthand of oh I'm going to like this person because this person likes them which seems to be um, like a big component of, of social media and this kind of spread uh, shared message um, do, are, are these events really important or are, is it more that you're getting to be involved with the community at that stage and it, it's like the format isn't really important. It's the people that are turning up that's important. I think it's both um, because, you know, that what people forget is that celebrities are normal people too. And a lot of them, uh, you know, we don't have a royal class here in the United States. <laughs> and so we have a lot of people who have been elevated to that position in society, not through some sort of hereditary system, but through their merit as entertainers, their merit as artists, um, their merit as athletes. And we have decided as a society that we value their skills in those areas. So these people have kind of a broad influence. doesn't mean that you need to take tax advice from them or anything, <laughs> but if you tend to agree with them about a lot of their social issues, like if you, like, let's say you agree with, um, you know, uh, somebody who's a TV writer or producer or star who think, who believes that, you know, LGBTQ rights are human rights and that we should have marriage equality, then you might say, oh yeah, you know, I see they have the same view as me. That's cool. They support this candidate for office. So I should have a look at that candidate. I think that that's just another way of people spreading the word and finding out about, uh, candidates they may not otherwise, because it amplifies the message. Um, on the other hand, I really think it's important, uh, like we did with the Patton Oswalt event to include the community where you're from and to show the people who are advocating for you, the celebrity folks, uh, that your community matters. And it's not just the national issues, but it's the local issues and all of the issues that we're dealing with you can find echoes of those issues uh, in other communities around the country and around the world. I mean, the more 
that we think we're different from everybody else, you know, the more I've seen throughout my work around the world that we're all fundamentally very, very similar. And we deal with similar issues and challenges, whether it's, you know, having unruly teenagers that you're trying to raise or, you know, trying to put food on the table or you're dealing with an environmental problem near your household or you want to have safe schools. I mean, you don't, you're not insulated from all of those things just because you have money. I mean, it certainly helps, but, uh, you know, it definitely, it, it doesn't dehumanize celebrities because they are people just like us. And it's, uh, it's really important that celebrities see the value that local communities have too. Mm. Well, Jess, thank you so much for, for talking with me. And, um, I should say, uh, for, for the sake of, uh, I know the, the fairness doctrine doesn't exist anymore, but if Stephen Knight does want to come on the show, then he's more than welcome to come and talk about his views. <laughs> but, um, but thank you for, for uh, joining me. No, thank you. This has been fantastic. Really, really great interview, great podcast. And I'm, uh, I hope I can see you in person again at some point, Jamie. And thanks for coming to the Patton Show. <laughs> thank you. That's it for the show. We'll be back in two weeks. You can find us online at whoiampodcast.com and contact us by email at whoiam at gmail.com or by phone at 818-308-4066. If you'd like to be a guest on the show, there is a submissions form on the site. We're also on iTunes where you can leave a rating if you feel inclined. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Jamie Gamble, and this was This Is Who I Am.